Hello and welcome to The Legal Cut, where we dissect your favorite scenes from TV, film, and literature to see how they hold up under the law. I'm Daniel Weber. I'm John Santiago. And Dan, this episode marks our season one finale. That's right, John. Loyal listeners, we said season one. More episodes are in the works, and season two will be coming out later this year, 2019. But let's get into today's episode. What topic are we discussing for our season finale, John? Well, Dan, today we're asking the question. After Indiana Jones saves the Ark of the Covenant from the Nazis, which government has rightful claim to ownership over the Ark? What shall we call this episode, Dan? Let's call it Litigators of the Lost Ark. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. So we will be looking at one of the best American movies ever made, Raiders of the Lost Ark, directed by Steven Spielberg and starring Harrison Ford. Now, the fifth Indiana Jones movie is set to be released in 2021, starring a very old Harrison Ford. But Dan, if you could write that movie, what adventure would you like to see Indy go on that time? You know what I think would be pretty rad, John? What? I think if they did an adventure in the Pacific Islands during the Cold War era conflict, you could have old Harrison Ford playing old Indiana Jones. Okay. And you could have American forces and Soviet forces squaring off in a tense little pressure cooker. And I could see that being one heck of a ride. That would be a very, very good use of the time period that they're in. My idea is something that they haven't done before. I want Indy to be entrusted to keep an artifact out of the hands of some sinister organization, and they chase him around the globe. Oh, so but he the, has the artifact the whole time. So it's the opposite of the other movies where he's chasing them. Right, he's he's trying to hide something. I like it. I mean, I'm so glad you didn't say more aliens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get into the Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is a movie that opens with probably the most iconic scene yeah the most iconic well at least in indiana jones oh uh, sure perhaps american cinema we open with indiana jones running for his life before a giant boulder after he's stolen a golden idol before he can escape he's cornered by a rival archaeologist renee belloc academic rivalries am i right they never get old they're among the most vicious you know why why because the stakes are that low (laughs) (laughs) all right so indy escapes on a seaplane sharing the seat with the pilot's pet snake i hate snakes oh yes he does classic (laughs) indiana jones so at this point two army intelligence agents visit indy telling him that his old professor slash mentor who is being hunted by the nazis possesses the headpiece of the Staff of Ra, which is both the map and key to finding the Ark of the Covenant in a secret chamber called the Well of Souls, and it's supposed to be located somewhere around Tanis, Egypt. Dan, you did a little research on the Ark. Want to get our listeners up to speed? Sure thing, John. The legend of the Ark of the Covenant comes from the Hebrew Bible. It was built by the Israelites as they were fleeing from Egypt, and it was constructed to house the original tablets upon which the Ten Commandments were written. Now, the Ark said to have been lost when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in 587 BC. Now, according to the Hebrew Bible, the Ark has divine powers. It stops the flow of the River Jordan, allowing the priests and presumably more of the tribe to pass. It made Israelite warriors more powerful when they carried it into battle, and it plagued the Philistines with tumors and diseases 
when they captured it, forcing them to return it to the Israelites. We kind of see a similar horror inflicted upon the Nazis in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark when they open it in the third act. Uh, there's a lot of faces melting off. Very gruesome stuff. Gruesome, but it serves them right. I hate Nazis, John. We all do, Dan, because we are good Americans. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The agents task Indy with getting the Ark before the Nazis get their filthy hands on it. Indy goes to Nepal, where he connects with Marion, an old flame. They fight some Nazis, burn down a bar, and escape with a headpiece to the Staff of Ra. This leads them to Tanis, Egypt, but... While there, Indian learns that the Nazis are already digging for the Ark, but because they don't have the complete staff of Ra, they're digging in the wrong place. Now, when Indiana goes in after the Ark, he gets discovered by the Nazis, and they give chase, Marion gets captured, Indy escapes, and I think this leads to one of those classic, classic scenes. I would argue that this is actually the best scene in the entire movie, where the villain with the sword is swinging away at Indy in the middle of this crowd, and what does he do? He's got a sword, and I can see Hollywood scripters being like, well, Indy's got a whip, and then I believe the story is Harrison Ford goes, wouldn't I just shoot him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he just does that. This guy demonstrates his prowess with the sword, and Indy just pulls from the hip, bang, done. I will admit, Dan, that whenever I'm about to go into a hearing or something where I'm going to face opposing counsel, I always look that clip up on YouTube just to give me <laughs> some inspiration. But long story short, they go to the Nazi dig site, they assemble the Staff of Ra, they uncover the Well of Souls, and unearth the Ark of the Covenant. That's a mouthful of a sentence, John. <laughs> Too bad they're immediately captured and Indy is left in the Well of Souls. Now, did we mention that the Well of Souls is also full of snakes? It's full of snakes. And Indy hates snakes. Right. Just before sealing Indy in with the snakes, they throw Marion in for good measure with them, and guess what? They escape. They race to the Nazi airfield in time to stop them from escaping with the Ark. In the process, maybe another famous scene, a Nazi kind of gets uh, uh, in the way of a propeller and gets a little pureed. Um, <laughs> That's so gross, Dan. <laughs> this movie has so many good set pieces. And after the airfield, Indy chases down the Nazis as they flee with the Ark. He jumps on the trucks, kicks some Nazi butt, and escapes with the Ark to a port. He gets on board a ship heading for London, but guess what the Nazis have? Das Boot? Yes, das U-Boot. That was a really bad German accent. <laughs> das U-Boot. <laughs> the Nazis take the Ark onto their submarine, but Indy sneaks aboard. The Nazis want to test the Ark out on an island before presenting it to Hitler, so the Nazis tie Indy and Marion to a post while they prepare to open the Ark. And Indy tells Marion not to look. Which I, I think has something to do with how deadly it is to look at something divine. I believe that's right. And what happens to the Nazis who look upon the divine, as we kind of touched on earlier? Their faces melt. Their faces melt. Indy and Marion escape this horror. But the Nazis and the jealous academic rival Belloc look upon the divine and they explode and melt and die horrible deaths. This scene is actually pretty disturbing, nightmare-inducing stuff. I remember it being pretty haunting when I first saw it. We're left off with one final scene where they crate up the Ark and ship it to a big warehouse somewhere in the U.S. Credits roll as the camera pulls back, revealing a massive warehouse filled with identical-looking boxes, implying that the Ark will be safely stored deep in anonymity. Just one more iconic scene from this film. So, Dan, the Ark passed through many hands. It was built by the Israelites, 
held by them for hundreds of years, and then it's lost. It ends up in an underground vault in Egypt where Indiana Jones, an American, finds it, but the Nazis physically pull it out of the ground, Indy steals it back and puts it on a boat for England, Nazis retake it in their sub, but they end up destroying themselves with it, and ultimately, it ends up in American hands being hidden away in an anonymous warehouse. Who has got a claim to this thing? And there's even one more additional complication. What's that complication, Dan? It's the weapons thing. Oh, so, yes. Yeah. This is kind of like a chemical weapon, almost like a nuclear device. It melts people's faces. That is going to complicate things. Or simplify it. <laughs> it, could, it could just be like, hey, it's a nuke. Let's uh, not. <laughs> right? No. No, we're not giving your nuke back. Has a country ever just handed over nukes? Actually, more specifically, has the U.S. ever done that? Like, given nukes to other countries? I actually don't have any idea. I'm sure that there's some stuff nobody knows about except for a select handful of people. But based on what we learned in international law, the United States would probably tell any country trying to claim an interest in something comparable to a nuclear weapon to go and pound sand. Sounds like a lot of what the U.S. international military policy is based on. Mm -hmm. Should we just stipulate that this is just a cultural artifact? I mean, the weapon component is part of the plot to the movie, but the might-is-right reality of military politics kind of settles that issue. The U.S. would keep it. I think you're right. So it's a cultural artifact. Let's say it may or may not have had divine powers. Like many cultural artifacts. Good point. Let's say its power, whatever it was, is spent, and now it's just a fancy box holding tablets that may or may not have come down from a mountain in a prophet's hand, uh, proclaiming the will of God, and may or may not have performed miracles in history, possibly as recently as when the Nazis were romping around Egypt. I think that works. Now let's get into the international law of cultural property. Let's do it, John. There are several international conventions that regulate, or at least attempt to regulate, stolen or illegally exported cultural property. First, there is the 1954 Hague Convention, for the protection of cultural property in the event of armed conflict. That, that is, is a very catchy name. It is. It just rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> uh, the purpose of the Hague Convention, let's just call it that, okay. as I do believe most people do, is right there in the title. To prevent the looting of cultural property during a war and conflict. Now next there's the 1970 United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization UNESCO Convention on the Means of Prohibiting and Preventing the Illicit Import, Export, and Transfer of Ownership and Cultural Property. Once again, this is actually just the name. I think <laughs> they do this on purpose. I think they try to just add in as many superfluous words as possible to make it difficult for future podcasters to say them on air. Yeah, let's see. What does that one even do, John? This one focuses on protecting cultural property during times of peace. But there is another convention that took place in 1995, and I think that is one of the more recent uh, international laws governing this sort of thing, right? Yeah, so here we go again. The 1995, let's start with the acronym UNIDROIT, or the International Institute for the Unification of Private Law Convention, which now that I look at it doesn't even flow, might not be English. Uh, <laughs> doesn't, it doesn't, it's international. It doesn't always have to be English, That's John. very true, but it should be. 
It should be. Because <laughs> we won the war. <laughs> Alright, kidding aside. <laughs> Alright, this one mandates the return of stolen cultural objects to their original owners. It defines stolen property broadly, applying to anything that was excavated or retained unlawfully. Now, Dan, for any of these to be enforceable in a U.S. court, the U.S. would have to ratify them. For example, Congress enacted the Cultural Property Implementation Act in 1982 to make laws from parts of the UNESCO Convention U.S. law. On the other hand, the U.S. has not ratified the Unidroid Convention. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Unless ratified, these conventions are not binding in U.S. courts, but they are still influential. The Hague Convention was not ratified until 2009, but U.S. armed forces were trained in its compliance since it was drafted back in 1954. So even though it's not binding, it can still have some weight. At this point, it might be apparent that this is a complicated area of law. There are international conventions. There are United States laws, foreign state laws, and all these create a messy tangle of rules. Add political pressures and you can simply forget about having a predictable outcome. So it would be great if there was some sort of alternative dispute resolution, say mediation? Mediation is the recommended course for resolving international cultural property disputes, and this comes from a 2011 Texas Bar Journal article by Professor Marilyn Phelan, and this was very helpful in guiding our research for this episode. The International Council of Museums has a mediation program that facilitates cooperative negotiations to these disputes. I think, John, what maybe we should do today is try negotiating the return of the Ark to one of its countries of origin. I think that would be a great idea, Dan, but we kind of need a bigger premise. Do you have any idea what that could be? Yeah, so we'll need some sort of uh, catalyst for this event. Uh, maybe Indiana Jones, after years of finding and collecting ancient artifacts for museums, maybe he has a change of heart about pulling cultural artifacts out of places and decides that it might be right to return cultural property to their nations and cultures of origin. Let's say he's advocating for the return of these artifacts, uh, in this case the Ark, back to its rightful owner, but the problem is, should the Ark go to Egypt, where it was found, or to Israel, the nation of the people who created it? That sounds like a great premise for a negotiation. It makes things a lot simpler. Now, how about I take Egypt's side and you take Israel's? I'm good with that. Want to start us off? Sure. Let's get into our negotiation <clears throat> personas. Uh, Mr. Santiago advocating on behalf of the Egyptian government. The Ark belongs in Egypt. It was found in Egypt after remaining there for thousands of years. Daniel Weber here advocating for the nation of Israel. The Ark belongs in Israel. The Israelites built the Ark after their exodus from life as slaves in Egypt, and it holds artifacts that are among the most sacred in all Judaism. The Ark was found in Egypt, had a specific temple built for it, and was stored in Egypt. Additionally, the nation of Israel did not exist until after the Ark was discovered and removed from Egypt. The nation of Israel did not construct the Ark, and therefore cannot claim it is a lost artifact of the nation under the UNESCO Convention. John, the Ark was lost during the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. The nation of Israel, which I would contest has always been a nation, 
has suffered too many indignities against its cultural property at the hands of the Nazis to tolerate further indignities of this kind. Bear in mind that it was the Nazis themselves who took the Ark from its resting place. The nation of Israel does recognize that Egypt has similarly had many of its cultural property sacked, and perhaps there is a way to redress both of these injustices. Nope, nope. There is no way of knowing how the Ark came to be in Egyptian possession. You are hardballing me, John. And it could have been gifted to the person who stored it there. It could have been claimed in a conquest. Either way, it's been under Egyptian control for a large part of its existence. The construction of the Well of Souls indicates that the Ark was meant to be in possession of Egypt forever. <laughs> okay, both Israel and Egypt are signatures to the Unidroid Convention mandating the return of stolen cultural property. The convention does not limit when the property was stolen. It's clear that at some time, the Ark was stolen from Jerusalem. It does not matter whose hands originally took it and then whose hands it passed through throughout the centuries. It's a stolen cultural artifact. It absolutely does matter whose hand it passed through through the centuries. Because we don't know how ownership was transferred, we cannot assume that it was unlawfully taken. And let's not forget the might versus right argument that ruled the day up until this more civilized age. Alright, Egypt has multiple cultural artifacts and historic sites. There is no way we're leaving this table without you ceding physical control of the Ark to us. I have an army outside! This is true, we do have a very contentious history, you and I, our two countries. <laughs> it is culturally important to the nation of Israel, and we as Egyptians do have other cultural property that we would like to protect. So, how about I propose this? You can have the Ark but we retain full control over the Well of Souls where it was found. That can't be your cultural historical site. Additionally, we request Israel's full cooperation in retrieving stolen Egyptian artifacts. And we also demand Israeli resources dedicated to repairing and maintaining Egyptian cultural heritage sites like the Great Pyramids every year that the Ark remains in Israel. So in essence, you're proposing that we would have physical control over the Ark of the Covenant, but that we must pay an annual fee to the Egyptian government to keep it. I would prefer a one-time transfer of goods as well as a continuing agreement of cooperation to make sure that any Egyptian cultural artifacts that rightfully belong in Egypt that are found in Israel possession of our private citizens or our museums, you would have the nation of Israel's full cooperation in returning those to its rightful possession in the nation of Egypt. I'm willing to drop the provision of an annual fee, as long as you said Israel has full cooperation with us in not only retrieving stolen Egyptian goods from within its borders, but also around the world. To the best of our ability, we can only do so much outside of our sovereign borders, but it sounds like we're in agreement on our terms. Do you want to drink some tea while we let our pesky lawyers set out the details? Yeah, let's let those annoying lawyers write the stuff. <laughs> All right, now, John, it might be a bit optimistic to think that two nations could reach an agreement in so short a time, but one can hope, right? One can hope, Dan. And I think, once again, we've covered all the bases. All right, well, that's going to do it for today. Remember, we have an email account where you can submit questions, comments, and ideas for new episodes, and that email is legalcut at gmail.com. And we have big news! Yes, John, we've opened new channels of access to the podcast. We are now on Apple and Spotify. 
Thank you to our incredible listeners for supporting us throughout the entirety of the first season. We are already planning great content for season two. I'm Dan. I'm John. And this has been The Legal Cut. We'll be right back.